Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the latest violent and expanding encampment, this one in Abbotsford. This is at the Lonzo Park and Ride. It's supposed to be a park and ride. It's been a sh- it's been an encampment there for many years. They had a brutal RV fire over there the other day. Abbotsford police say they've been called out to this encampment literally thousands of times over the last several years. I've got Abbotsford Mayor Ross Seaman standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. It's the largest homeless encampment in Abbotsford, and over the years, it's been growing in size and escalating in violence. A fire Monday night in one of the RVs being used as a shelter. We're frustrated. Um, It's a concern in our community. Burned out mobile homes, tarp structures and tents, all on what's supposed to be a park and ride lot near Highway 1, just west of Sumas Way. What kind of violent crime do you see here? Yeah, so we've seen things such as stabbings, uh, knife attacks, uh, machetes. Uh, We've taken firearms out of here. Okay, the city asking for the province for help to clean this up. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ross Siemens, the mayor of Abbotsford. Very pleased to welcome him. Ross, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. I think a lot of people may be familiar with this encampment because it's kind of near a busy, it looks like it's near a busy stretch of road there too, right? Yes, it's at the basically at the intersection of Highway 11 and Highway 1. So Highway 11 yeah. is from the border to Mission. How many people are living in there? Um, at this point, we're thinking in the neighborhood of about 15 to 25. Okay, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound like a lot, but it looks like when you take a look at the pictures of this thing, it looks like quite a sprawling site there, a lot of junk and stuff there. Yeah, that's. Um, it spills over from the park and ride. It goes underneath the, along the railway tracks, underneath the freeway, and so it, yeah, it's it's a huge mess. And, and one of the challenges is people, you know, will drop sofas and you know some of their garbage oh. off, and so um, that's the other challenge. It attracts that type of um, activity as well. Right, and we heard in that global report there a voice of local police expressing concern. And am I, am I reading this right, that p- local police have been called out to this encampment over 10,000 times? What? Yeah, I mean, again, this is um, police and fire, and this is going back over, you know, the course of probably about the last five years is what we've uh, yeah, so there's all sorts yeah. of challenges, and that'll be, you know, the neighboring businesses as well um, being called out to some of the activity that spills out from there. Yeah. Okay, speaking of the local businesses, let's listen to Sophie Yankowski, who is a server at a nearby restaurant, and how she was uh, assaulted and police had to call, had to be called. Let's have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. She strangled my neck. She ripped my clothes. Like... I had to call the police, and they had to physically come remove her. Okay, so they had to call police. She was attacked uh, at where she works. 
Ross, I mean, this is, what are your concerns here? I'm, I'm sure you have many. Yeah, I mean, this is totally unacceptable um, to have happening in our city. And, and the challenge that we have is, is um, you know, the mental health and addictions component of this, uh, because people are, are acting out um, and it's not safe. I mean, that business has endured more than, than um, anybody should be um, you know, required to endure. I, mean, I have a small business as well downtown Abbotsford, and and um, so I'm well aware of those challenges. But when it starts to escalate to physical like that, that that's totally unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Okay, let's listen to the police chief here, Abbotsford Police Chief Mike Sear, asking for help. Let's listen here. There's just so many uh, issues that we're facing here that we really need a solution quickly. Okay, so they're asking for help and intervention quickly here, but, you know, can you talk to me a little bit about the uh, the, the complexity of this? Because this is pr- provincial government-owned land, is that correct? Yes. So, I mean, Abbotsford is the largest geographic municipality in the province. We've got 42 kilometres of Highway 1. Um, and so we've got, you know, this encampment is, is a, a real challenge because it's on a busy intersection. Um, it's along the railway tracks. Um, and there is a policy in place that uh, Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure won't move people out unless there's housing available. So right. we are working with the housing minister on, on some solutions. The city has um, been working with them um, for the last several months, actually probably well over a year. Um, and so it does get complex because there's cross-jurisdictional issues uh, where housing can be. Uh, so some of those challenges are there. And then we've got, of course, you know, housing is only part of the solution. Uh, mental health and addictions. I mean, if people don't avail themselves of the, the housing that's going to be provided or that is being provided, uh, you know, what do we do? Uh, because, yeah. uh, you know, and are people making these decisions in a, with a healthy mind? And, and so the, um, that's, that's, I think, the crux of the problem. This is a societal issue that goes great across North America, and we are in the midst of a mental health crisis. And until we wrap our heads around that, housing is, is an important component of it, but keeping people yeah. housed um, and keeping people healthy, that's the other challenge that we're facing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Speaking to Abbotsford Mayor Ross Siemens, and we're talking about the, the sprawling encampment there causing so much trouble there, the Lonzo Park encampment, been there for a long time. You mentioned that the idea you don't want to move people out of there and into some sort of housing, but there's no housing available. Like, there is a housing, isn't there like a social housing development very nearby, but it's full up, right? Yes, and so we are working on um, on some some additional housing and I'm not at um, liberty to discuss too many of those details uh, but we have been working with the Ministry of Housing um, and you know the challenge again is that um, moving people and cleaning the encampment up making sure that we have housing options available so yeah this is a, a growing escalating issue um, and it's right across the province and and yeah um, yeah, so that's that's one of our biggest challenges right now. Is um, but housing is only part of it uh, because there is an right. emergency shelter that um, and there is options available to people, um, but it's maybe the type of housing that they don't want to um, to accompany or to, yeah. to be part of. So. 
that's the other challenge. I think we have to start addressing the what are we going to do, um, you know, to get proper mental health assessments to get people the help that they need because, you know, they're spinning out of control. Let's have a listen to the housing minister here. Here's Ravi Kalon. He was asked about this Abbotsford encampment. Here's what he had to say. Well, we're a couple of weeks away from uh, announcing uh, our next steps on it. Okay, a couple of weeks away. Okay, it sounds like something's cooking here behind the scenes there. You, you sound like you were kind of hinting at that too, Mayor. Yeah, I mean, the, the Premier has been out um, when he was the housing minister to tour this um, site. Uh, the housing, the, the present housing minister has been out. Uh, the, the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure has been out. Um, so, you know, we are optimistic that there are... Um, some some announcements coming and and yeah. we've we've had a good working relationship um and um yeah so we we're we are optimistic that that is yeah. um that that's on its way that's good to hear but as you pointed out this is not the only city the only encampment i mean there are dozens of these around the province that vary in size and 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 pro- levels of problems um we've talked a lot about them here on the show what are you last question for you what, what would you say like what are you hearing from the people of Abbotsford like they just want this cleaned up like what are they telling you yeah i mean uh, abbotsford is a very compassionate city and and people want to help um but you know they're they're feeling very frustrated because it just seems to be you know the, there's so many layers to this there's this criminal element that gets involved there's the the yeah. addiction issues um there's the the mess that happens the people that are preying off the vulnerable so there's a whole host of of issues i think you know starting by cleaning this site up and making sure we have some housing options we have a number of outreach teams that are working and trying to build relationships um but i think the other component of it is of course mental health and addictions we have to wrap yeah. our heads around that as a society because uh letting people um, you know, mentally ill uh, or addicted people to fend for themselves, um, that's unacceptable. And, and uh, I'm just, you know, it's, it's a really complex issue that society, not just government, government has definitely a role to play, but society also has to come to terms with how do we allow this to happen in a country like this? Yeah. Okay, we'll follow it closely here going forward. Thank you for coming on this morning. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, you get kind of deja vu talking about these stories because there are so many of these encampments around british columbia so many different cities that are dealing with the the violence and the sprawling growing nature of these encampments and the local governments just can't deal with it and they're pleading for help there now you heard my conversation with ross siemens there the mayor of abbotsford saying like to the province help us with this will you this encampment that has had hundreds, like literally thousands of police calls out to that encampment in Abbotsford. This is provincial government-owned land, and they're pleading with the province to do something. It sounds like something's cooking behind the scenes there, and there may be some action on this pretty soon. Meanwhile, in Nanaimo, another encampment there with lots of problems. Remember Clint Smith, the guy I talked to on the show a few weeks ago? He was the guy who owned the, the auto repair shop in, in Nanaimo, and a bunch of his stuff was stolen out of his shop. He went down to that encampment there, and he got shot. He was shot in the stomach, brutally injured. I got Colin Middleton standing by to discuss. Let's go back to Clint here, because Clint 
when the provincial government, when Mike Farnworth showed up, the solicitor general to Nanaimo, in Nanaimo, the the premier came out to Nanaimo. He went right up to Farnworth and told him, "I mean, you got to do something about this." Have a listen to this. None of you guys, after I got shot, made a single effort to communicate with me. Do something about it. That's what we're trying to do. A whole lot less lip service and a whole lot more action that's, is required, Mike. Yeah, okay. So he got right in his grill there and said, look, you got to do something about this. Check in with Colin Middleton now, Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Colin. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for doing this. So this is a, a situation where we see it repeated in a, in a lot of different cities. What is the status of the encampment in Nanaimo right now? I know you had the premier there, you had the solicitor general there promising help. What's going on? Well, I, I think it's important for you and your listeners to understand that in Nanaimo, there isn't one single large encampment. There are uh, probably dozens of very small encampments that will vary in size from uh, you know, just one or two um, tents uh, up to, you know, half a dozen. And they, they shift and they grow and they they change through through the uh, through the year. Right, right. So, yeah, there's a lot of them. But there was one there was one made the big one where Clint got shot there. Is that still there? Yeah, no, it yeah. is still there. And it's one that's about a half dozen uh, tents that, again, they shift and the, the number of them change. This morning as I was driving to work, uh, right up at the top of that encamp, at the top of the embankment um, where that encampment was, at the bottom of the hill, um, there at the park, Pearson Park, where we held our rally for Clint. Um, right where I was standing for that rally, uh, there is right now a tent there. Okay. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't seem, seem to really end, but I know you, you probably heard my conversation there with the mayor of Abbotsford and the situation there. And he's saying, look, this is a complex issue. It's not just about housing, but it's about drug addiction. It's about mental illness. How are we going to solve this? And you and I have talked about these issues too. Like, could you talk a little bit about that, the complexity of this and what's going to be required to improve it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with uh, with the mayor of Abbotsford, and it was a great interview. Um, the The issue is, you know, it, it the public safety emergency that we're facing is the confluence of three uh, overlapping social crises. It's a mental health and addiction crisis. It's a housing and affordability crisis, and it's a law enforcement and judicial system crisis, all happening at the same time. And in order to deal with it, we have to look at solutions that are coordinated a- across the board for these these different um, uh, issues, as well as m- all levels of government. This is not something that we can just half measure our way out of like this is a societal scale all hands on deck um uh social uh emergency that's facing our culture and our society okay well we're going to continue to follow it closely i think you're doing a good job continuing to highlight it colin thanks for a lot for coming on today okay thank you hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, here we go now with vacancy control. Should this be introduced in BC? We got an awesome panel standing by on this. Now, most people know we already have rent control in BC. Landlords face a maximum cap on how much they can raise the rent every year. This year it's 2%. Unless you have a brand new tenant. So if a new tenant moves in, then you can increase the rent. Should that be made illegal? That's what vacancy control is. You tie the rent cap to the actual unit of housing, not the tenant. So if even a new tenant moves in, you can't dramatically hike up that rent. I've got Kit Souter, Gene Swanson standing by. Have a listen to... Doug King here, Together Against Poverty. He supports vacancy control. Let's listen. A vacancy control is a system where rent is tied, not just during a tenancy, uh, not just controlled during a tenancy, but tied to the unit instead of the individual. So in between tenancies, if one person moves out and a new person moves in, uh, the landlord is restricted from rising uh, the rent, from increasing it to the market as much as they possibly can. And, and what we've seen is that's effective at preventing those really steep drastic increases in rent. Okay, let's discuss now with our panel. Both sides of it for you. Kit Souter, co-chair of Vancouver Renter Advisory Committee. Hey, Kit, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. And just so you know, I'm no longer with the Renter Advisory Committee. Uh, there's been a new board appointed, and I'm really excited to see the work that they're going to do volunteering for the city. But I am still a uh, policy expert on the issue and a strong advocate for more housing for all. Thank you for that, Kit. Also on the line is Jean Swanson. Jean is a community activist. She's a former Vancouver City Councillor. Hi, Jean. Hey, Mike. Hey, Kit. Okay, thank you to both of you for coming on. Gene, I know you support vacancy control. You, you wrote a recent opinion article about this in a column. Can you tell me why? Yeah, if we had vacancy control, rents would be cheaper, faster. We'd have fewer evictions. It would stop the real estate investment trusts and other investors from buying up uh, apartment buildings for the sole purpose of raising rents. And buildings, apartment buildings would be cheaper for nonprofits to buy. Right. So the way it would work, as I understand it, let's say a new tenant moves in, then the landlord, what, the, the, the previous lease agreement would just sort of carry over, like the rent would remain the same? Is that how it would work? You could have all kinds of vacancy control. You, you know, PEI in Manitoba have vacancy control. New York State has vacancy control. You can have vacancy control on some buildings, but not others. You can have vacancy control that allows a little bit of rent increase, but not as much as the landlord wants. You can um, design it however you like. Yeah. Okay, Kit Souter. Kit, I know you're opposed to this idea, right? Tell me why. Yeah, well, I, I think that it's fiddling at the edges and trying to fix problems from the last century without actually tackling the root of the problem. And uh, I've got to say that I've got a lot of love and respect for Jean and the work that she's done, the service she's provided to the city and the country. Um, but the fact of the matter is that vacancy controls are a outmoded economic model that are designed to try and uh, band-aid over a massive um, structural problem within our housing market, which is that we do not have enough housing. Um, CMHC came out with a report this year, last year, for the last seven years, saying we need millions of more 
units of housing of all kinds everywhere and all at once. And um, just to do the math on that real quick, Mike, one in 50 Canadians live in the city of Vancouver proper. And for us to meet the 3.5 million uh, additional houses on top of the 2.3 million that they expect to build, that's almost 6 million housing units that need to be built in this country. Vancouver has to build, not approve, build 23,000 new units of housing every single year for the next five years. We're not even close. We barely broke 10,000 units approved last year, and we didn't even get 9,300 built. So the simple fact of the matter is that vacancy control is designed to make things easier for those who have the least in our society, which Gene and I absolutely agree on. But the fact of the matter is we have to be building from the bottom up and the middle out, and we're not doing it. Okay, Gene, what do you say to that? We should just build more housing. Your thoughts? Well, I always think of my role as working for more affordability. Um, mm-hmm. There was a very interesting tweet by Jill Atke from the Nonprofit Housing Association um, looking at affordability of housing between 2016 and 2021 in BC. And we lost about a thousand units, uh, about a hundred thousand units that rent for under twelve fifty a month, and we gained about a hundred thousand for units that rent over two thousand a month. So, if we have vacancy control, we wouldn't be losing that affordability. I have no problem with building new housing. I think we should build lots of new housing. I'd love to see, you know, like 20,000 new units of non-market housing being built every year. Um, I would tax the rich to do that easily, you know, if I were the king or the whatever. Um, But the fact is that just saying we need supply, 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 and then the supply that gets built rents for 2,500, 3,000 and up, you're not helping the 86,000 Households that Vancouver identified as being in housing need last year, 86,000 in housing need. Talking vacancy control with my guests, Gene Swanson, Kit Souter. Kit, what about the, I, I think we should look at this from the landlord's point of view too. So if you were to say to a landlord, okay, if even if you bring in a new tenant, you are not allowed to raise the rent, you would still face that rent cap. Do you think that is there a danger some landlords could say, you know what, I'm I'm done with this because you're not capping my input costs like my own costs to are going up for insurance and local taxes and repairs and maintenance. And if you keep putting these caps on, it's it's not going to be in my interest to be a landlord anymore. Is that a, is that an issue? Go ahead. Yeah. So so. Uh... I want to make it very clear. I don't think Gene or I have particular sympathy for landlords, particularly REITs and, and large uh, property holders. But the, the economics is very clear. If you have an average turnover rate in a rent or a lease, which is about three and a half years in the city of Vancouver, and you have a compound cost of interest on the cost of maintaining a unit of estimated by the Construction Association of Canada, 5.7% year over year last year. So let's just say we're starting today. We put in a vacancy control and we see inflation on the cost of maintenance going up 5.7% every year. Well, in three and a half, four years, you're talking about over a 24% increase. So it's $120 to get a plumber in to fix a unit. And then it's going to be about a $160, right? Yeah. That's not good 
uh, economics, and Gene and I agree. We should have a massively expanded suite of affordable housing units, but that 87,000 households, right? If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, my family becomes uh, in line for state support, right? And we're a healthy six-figure income, right? And so the simple fact of the matter is that if we only align with Gene's view on this, what we're trying to do is massively expand the state, massively spend billions and billions of dollars that we need for climate response, innovation, um, hardening of infrastructure, right? Like we have so many needs and so many overlapping crises, and there is a very simple solution, which is build more housing everywhere of all kinds and all at once. Okay, Gene, what what do you say to that argument that if you put in this vacancy control that you want, that landlord, it's just not it's just not feasible for landlords on a business model. Your thoughts? So, uh, Mike, I always look at the Goodman Reports, which is a real estate uh, company that sells apartment buildings, and I looked up a couple of them just before uh, yesterday before this. I knew I was coming on. So, there's one building that's for sale at. 2275 Oxford with 42 units it costs 114.5 million and it's been extensively renovated and that has a bachelor suites worth rents of $1022 and one bedroom suites with $1263 a month and two bedroom at 1344 a month and their gross income for a year is 680k and their operating expenses are 207k with a net income of 469,000 on that building and their taxes are 37,000 so you could double the taxes and you'd still be having an income of 430,000 you could double the maintenance and you'd still be having a handsome income and in fact if you look at Um, these ads, it shows that the operating and maintenance costs, even when there have been quite a bit of renovations, are usually about a third of the gross income. So the owner is taking quite a bit of profit, and even if taxes go up a lot or inflation goes up, they still get the 2% increase, right? Plus, they have quite a bit of profit to take up some of the other extra costs. Okay. We're debating vacancy control in B.C. Should that be brought in? Both sides of it here for you. Kit Souter, Gene Swanson, and a full phone board here. Glenn and Coquitlam. Hi, Glenn. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm a small landlord in Vancouver. I've got six suites, and I'm not complaining at all because I really enjoy being a landlord. I've got really great tenants. Um, But um, the only chance I have of ever raising my rents is when a tenant leaves because I've got tenants that have stayed for like 10 years. And um, uh, people like your guest there haven't got a clue as to being a landlord. She didn't even mention the fact that people like myself have a mortgage that's huge. And um, that, that takes up a huge part of my expense of running my place. And um, I have to raise my rents when a tenant leaves. Otherwise, I'd be losing a huge amount of money. Okay. Um, and I enjoy being a landlord. It's, it's because I have a really great tenant. But, you know, okay. thank, you thank to be you. realistic. Thank you for calling in with that. Gene, what do you say to him? Well, he has an asset. He's paying off the asset. 
but he's actually getting the tenants to pay for his asset. I think, you know, we have to look at, do we want housing to be a financial asset for people? And that's why I think it's really important that we have lots of non-market housing. And the problem is that without vacancy control in Vancouver, occupied um, units are $800 a month less than vacant units. So that means on the average, and this is according to CMHC, when a tenant leaves in Vancouver, the landlord raised the rent by $800. And that is a lot more than just maintenance. So that's helping paying off the mortgage and buying an asset for that landlord. And if he sells it, then the tenant's going to have to start buying an asset for another person too. It's just not a good way to do housing. And in the meantime, before we get a new way, we need to protect the affordability that we have and that we're losing by thousands of units every year. Kit, what do you say to that? I'd say that Jean has her point of view, and she is trying to be a champion for those who have the greatest amount of need within our society, but it's not a broad enough perspective. And as a small business owner um, and as a renter, I appreciate Glenn's commitment to providing value. I think that the one thing that I'd point to in Jean's argument is her talking about an asset when what I think we're really talking about is commodification of housing. Are you leveraging housing to make grotesque profit? And we've built and rigged a system so that if you were born at a certain time or could inherit a certain amount of money, you would be able to ratchet up the prices and make a, an absolute steal. But Glenn has an asset. Glenn is investing in his community. Glenn is investing in our society. Glenn is working to try and make sure that there's high quality support and high quality housing for other people like Glenn. And so the, the choice that we have here is do we want massive state intervention that destroys and breaks markets and or do we want to unleash the potential of average people to do good things with small and medium-sized investments? Because if you let people have a clear playing field, yeah. they will almost always choose to do good things that help build their community. Okay, let's squeeze in another call. Sadly, we just got two minutes left here. Steve in the West End. Steve, please ask your question quickly. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, in essence, the cure for high prices is high prices. I mean, this is why people move to Surrey and Langley and in many cases are moving to Alberta. Um, definitely the supply solution is a, is a great idea. But I, I think when you look at the lady's example of using the apartment complex of profit models it doesn't really translate to the small mom and popper scale is a big factor when you when you look at at profit so okay yeah sorry yeah go ahead thank you steve for the call and we just have a a minute left so i'll give each of our panelists here sort of 30 seconds here to sum up gene go go ahead you got 30 seconds here so According to CMHC, that difference of $800 between an occupied and a vacant unit, we're losing affordability in thousands of units every year just in Vancouver. We could stop that loss. We can't replace the affordability that we're losing with new housing as fast as we're losing it. 
we could if we had vacancy control. And then the nonprofit housing that we start building would actually be in addition to what we have and start carving up some of those 86,000 people that are in need so that they wouldn't be in need. Okay, Kit, Kit Souders. Kit, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Yeah, Mike, I, I think at, at the nub of this, um, Canadians are fundamentally good people, fundamentally welcoming people, fundamentally industrious people. And we have a system that was put in place in the 1970s across North America to restrict the ability for people to build and invest in their own communities the way that they want to, when they want to. The solution to these problems, the 3.5 million homes that we need to get built in the next five years, is let everyone build everywhere all at once, four, six stories, small multiplexes, so we can build vibrant communities again in a society that is fraying at the edges and crumbling apart. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, here we go now with ultra-processed food. Now, we've all heard about processed food, junk food. This is ultra-processed food, and we eat a lot of it. What is this stuff doing to our bodies and our health? Now, I've got Chris Van Tulliken standing by in London. I highly recommend his new book, Ultra-Processed People, The Science Behind the Food, that isn't food. And Chris is the guy who did a scientific experiment on himself, ate an ultra-processed food diet for a month. Have a listen to him. Here he is on the Beeb, the BBC. Let's listen. I'm going to switch from my normal healthy diet. It's pretty healthy. I eat about 20% ultra-processed food to an 80% ultra-processed food diet. And that is the same diet, it sounds extreme, but it's the same diet that around one in five people in the UK eat. So I want to find out if changing, just doing nothing but changing the proportion of ultra-processed food in my diet has any effect on my health. Okay, I wanted to find out too. So we'll talk about how this uh, affected Chris. Very pleased to welcome Chris to the show. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, it's a huge pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you on here. I, I love the book. I think it's a very timely topic. So let's first of all, can you define this for me? Ultra processed food. What what exactly is that? So as you say, uh, we you know, it's 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 the stuff that our parents would have referred to as simply processed food. But processing food processing is ancient. It's been going on for way over a million years. And in fact, humans have to process their food. Um, so cheese is a traditional processed food. Butter is a processed food. We take a whole food like milk, process it into traditional foods like cheese and butter. Now, ultra processed food isn't a casual term like junk food. It's a formal scientific definition of food. And it was developed in around 2010 to try and describe the category of industrial food that we're sure is driving diet related disease. So there's a very long formal scientific definition. You can go and look it up on the United Nations Food and Agriculture website. But it boils down to this. If it's wrapped in plastic and it has an ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, then it is UPF, 
Or an another good rule of thumb is if there's a health claim on the packet, like it's vitamin enriched or high in fiber, it's almost certainly ultra processed. <laughs> okay, so even if it has a health claim on there, that's a that's a usually a dead giveaway, right? Right. Okay. Okay. So. Right. So we're so talking there is about an example. There's yeah. lots of it that we, we would recognize as obvious junk that we sort of know isn't healthy because it's high in salt, high in fat and high in sugar. So there's the, you know, the stuff you buy at service stations on the highway. But there's right. a lot of it um, that we might think is healthy. So almost all of our breakfast cereals and almost all of our supermarket bread is ultra processed. And so in the Canadian diet now, it makes up about 60 percent of the calories we eat. Okay, this is the surprising part that I think might surprise a lot of people is just how much of this stuff that we eat, right? Like we eat way more of this stuff than maybe people realize, right? Yeah, so it's about 60% of calories on average in Canada and the States, United Kingdom and Australia. This wow. has really taken over our diet. It has for several generations now. So it is really food culture in Canada. And I say that I, I'm, I'm not being snobby. I am a Canadian. I'm a Canadian citizen. I may not sound like it, but I spend every summer in Canada. Oh, and cool. um, this is this is the food that we primarily eat. And particularly, I should say that the, the ticklishness in discussing this is that this is food uh, that is predominantly eaten by vulnerable uh, disadvantaged people particularly. So I went on an 80% ultra-processed food diet. That's a very normal diet for people in Canada who live on low incomes, for teenagers in Canada, for many indigenous communities, um, for people of color. This, this, is, this is food that is particularly exploitative of people who are disadvantaged. Well, sure, because it's cheap, right? Right. So for many people, it's yeah. the only affordable, available food. And so I think right. what's really important... If there's kind of one thing I want people to take away from the book, it's that we mustn't stigmatize the people who eat this food, nor really should we stigmatize the food itself. The point is to change the way we think about the companies that make the food. And I, yeah. I think what we really need is to start thinking about these companies in the same way we think about the tobacco industry. So these are companies that are extremely extractive they're transnational. They have about the same amount of power as a, the government of a medium-sized country. And we should recognize that when we come to consider their influence over the information that we consume. Okay, I really want to dig into that with you here. Let me ask you first, though, about the, the experiment you just touched on there where you were eating an ultra-processed food diet for a month. I find this fascinating. And let's play I'll play another clip here for you from the this was all documented and got a lot of attention on the BBC and elsewhere. So th I love this part here. This is you're eating this stuff. And at one point you get up in the middle of the night having a little bit of trouble here dealing with this diet you're on. Well, let's let's play it. Then I'll get your thoughts. So let's listen. It's um, 4 a.m. I have to come to the kitchen. I can't sleep. I've got heartburn. I've got a headache. I feel like eating more food. <laughs> this is the part I love because, yeah, you've got, it sounds like you got some heartburn going on there. You can't sleep. You're eating all this stuff. But then, as you said at the end, you feel like eating more of it, right? So did you find when you were eating this, like you were, you actually enjoyed eating it? You wanted to eat more of it? Well, a, a, a kind of an amazing thing happened during the diet because I think most people will recognize this, particularly as we get older and we have kids and we get more and more exhausted, food starts to feel like the solutions to our problems, particularly when you're tired, this this food feels like it might be comforting, it it soothes you, it's, it's what you crave. Um, 
in fact, the, the diet had kind of four main effects. So I gained a huge amount of weight, even though I wasn't force feeding myself. The second thing that happened is we measured my hormone response to a meal. So when you eat, your body releases hormones that tell you if you eat food, normal food, it tells you when to stop eating. At the end right. of this 80 percent diet, which is not an extreme diet, as I say, it's a typical diet for a t Canadian teenager. Yeah. My my hunger hormones remained sky high at the end of the meal. So this is food that's interfering with our body's evolved systems for regulating our dietary intake. We then did MRI scans of my brain and saw that after just a month, we'd had huge changes in the connections between the addiction sites in my brain and the reward, uh, and sorry, and the, and the, um, the habit forming parts of the brain. So a lot of different dialogue in the brain going on between automatic behavior and reward. But okay. something really interesting happened midway through the diet. I spoke to a scientist who sort of underlined that this food isn't really food. She said, you know, it's just an industrially produced edible substance. And that really <laughs> stuck with me. And I, after the call, I went to eat the dinner of fried chicken and I couldn't finish it. And the food became instantly disgusting. And I was sort of released from an addiction. And that's my proposal to the readers of the book really is don't try and resist this food. Just eat along while you read and learn about xanthan gum and emulsifiers and f how flavorings affect your palate and the flavor enhancers and synergistic umami. Learn about all this stuff. And you may find by the end of the book that if you previously struggled resisting this food, that has actually become a bit disgusting for you. Okay, now this is really interesting, the result of this experiment. You just touched on it there. So at the end of the month when you're eating this stuff, you had, you did, they did some analysis on your body. Like how did this change your body and how did it change your brain? Like this, this is what I find fascinating. So let's listen to that part, then I'll get your thoughts on this. Have a listen. So this is Chris at the end of the one month on this ultra-processed diet. Let's listen. Your weight went up by 6.5 kilograms in four weeks. That's quite a lot, isn't it? And your body mass index went up by two points, which took you into the overweight range. My diet has linked up the reward centers of my brain with the areas that drive repetitive automatic behavior. So eating ultra-processed food has become something my brain simply tells me to do without me even wanting it. Shockingly, this is something you might see in a person with addiction. Okay, so this is where this gets really fascinating because, I, I, Chris, I don't think it's surprising you, you, you gained a ton of weight while you're eating this diet. But tell me about this, uh, this changes in the brain scan that you saw. So we are really, so the, I was the, um, this wasn't a casual stunt we were doing just for TV. It was filmed by the BBC, but I'm an academic. I'm a scientist at University College in London. And so I was the pilot data case for a much larger study on ultra processed food, which we're now running. Yeah. And we have never scanned anyone's brain after switching from a normal diet. I did a washout period of six weeks before switching to the diet of UPF. It's never been done before. Exactly what these changes mean is really hard to say. So I did this with a team of neurologists and neuroscientists, and everyone agrees that it's concerning when you link up habit-forming bits of the brain with addiction parts of the brain. Certainly, I felt, for most of the diet, extremely addicted to the food, and, and I have for a very long time. And about half the people listening will recognize that there are certain foods 
that they find it really incredibly hard to stop eating. And food addiction for those who live with it is never just to normal food. It's always to ultra processed products. And we have really clear data that shows that if you're addicted to UPF or certain UPF, it's as addictive as heroin, nicotine, uh, alcohol, uh, uh, cocaine, uh, other drugs of abuse. It's it's incredibly addictive and incredibly hard to stop. And, and that's one wow. of the kind of main arguments about why we need to limit the marketing of this food, especially to children. All right. So glad we got a few more minutes here with Chris Van Tullican. His book is Ultra Processed People, the science behind the food that isn't food. And Chris, you were talking earlier about the, the addictive quality of some of this food. And we're talking about, this is big business. These are big multinational corporations that, that make the food very profitable. Do they, they know that, right? They kind of focus, focus group and test these foods to, to see if they are quote unquote addictive. It's such a great question. And I think it, it the interesting thing is like, do, are, are they deliberately trying to create addictive food? I, I would yeah. say they're probably not. I've spoken to loads of people in the food industry, they're all decent people who are just trying to, you know, pay their bills. But the way the food has been designed over many decades, so the breakfast cereals that you and I ate as kids still exist on the shelves today, but they've been reformulated, put exactly as you say, through focus groups. And one of the things that is measured in the focus groups is how much do people eat? And so if there's box A of a breakfast cereal and box B, a slightly different formulation, if people prefer box B, they eat more of it, they don't even have to prefer it. That's the box that goes on the shelves. And this happens, this has been happening for four, five, six decades for some products. And so they're now really hard to stop eating. And exactly how the food companies are doing it, possibly they don't even know. Some of it is just trial and error. But we have some really useful clues. So for the most part, and people listening to the show uh, will have ultra processed food around them. So, you know, you can get out the pack and just do this experiment now. Get out your tube bar or some supermarket bread, whatever it is. Read the ingredients and start eating. And the thing you'll mainly <laughs> notice is it's incredibly soft. So that there are these yeah. like illusions of texture where things are crunchy or creamy or, you know, have a little crust on them. But for the most part, it's very, very soft. It's also very dry. And the dryness is what gives it long, long shelf life. Bugs can't grow if there's no, no water around. So the dryness and the softness gives it energy density that you consume incredibly quickly. And that is partly what drives the addiction. The other thing is oh. these molecules that tell lies in our mouths. So um, instead of easily digested protein giving an umami flavor, we replace the protein with glutamate, uh, inosinate and guanolate. So this synergistic umami that tells your body proteins on its way, but when it never arrives, because all you've eaten is a potato chip, that may be what's leading you to have another and another and another. The same thing happens with artificial sweeteners. They signal sweet taste in the mouth. Sugar is on its way. When the sugar doesn't arrive, you go and get your sugar elsewhere. And lots of the gums, the xanthan gum, guab gum, locust bean gum, these things you'll find in yogurts and ice cream, they've replaced expensive dairy fats. They tell your mouth that fat is on its way. And then when fat doesn't arrive, that may be also why you can't stop eating. So this, wow. this food is very good at subverting your body's ability to say, I'm full. I've had enough. That's, that's fascinating. We just got two minutes left here, Chris. This, the one thing that I guess occurs to a lot of people is what is this doing to, to our bodies, our health, and to our children, right? Like here in Canada, like in other countries, we've got, we've got problems with childhood obesity. 
And one of the things that jumped out at me in, in your book was, you know, we know we all know about childhood obesity. People are getting shorter. Can you tell me about that? People are getting shorter, not only heavier, yeah, but if you, shorter. If you if you compare British children, Canadian children, or American children, or and adults, in fact to their Scandinavian or Northern European equivalents, they are very significantly shorter. Like you will see it is four, five, six centimeters by the time they're at adulthood. So this food is causing a form of malnutrition. Children aren't just, obesity isn't simple calorific excess. It goes hand in hand in, with malnutrition. So. Oh. Our poor diet has now replaced smoking as the leading cause of early death on planet Earth. And ultra-processed food, you know, this isn't a book about one study. This is a book about hundreds of very robust uh, scientific studies done by Canadian scientists, American scientists, places at Harvard, Cambridge, uh, Marseille, you know, big, big universities. And we're sure now that ultra-processed food is associated with um, cancers, anxiety, depression, um, inflammatory disease, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, weight gain and obesity, of course, but also early death. So this is a very, very significant public health problem. And I think the public know this. I think instinctively, the book has a really simple message. Food made by companies owned by pension funds acts differently in your body to food made by someone who loves you at home. And people get that and they are there is an appetite for regulation. Okay. It's been fascinating to talk to you today, Chris. Thank you for your time. Congratulations with all your success on the book. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Mike, it's such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.